Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Lios Enchim Anyavu. Greetings, everyone. May the Creator bless you all. And welcome to my podcast, The Good Do E Medicine Podcast. I'll be your host, Pete Rodriguez. Uh, we had an elder that started. Uh, her name was Nora Pratt, and she prayed over three varieties of our corn. And it was a beautiful blessing that she gave us. Um, it lasted over an hour. She had those three varieties of seed in her hand that she kind of fondled and and just went on to as she prayed remembered our ancestors remembered what it that corn used to taste like but she was really uh quite elderly at the time and she remembered those things what it tasted like and and all that but in 1998 then with that prayer that's what inspired us to start the Pawnee Seed Preservation Project. It's come a long ways from those three varieties. Um, some of our seeds that we got back from families and, you know, thank goodness that the Culture Committee and our Nisharo Council of Chiefs, we have eight chiefs, um, they did a shout out to our community and they, they said, uh, if you have any of those seeds from Nebraska, you know, please give them the dev myself. And uh, so I kept track of those. Um, I had grown some seeds, uh, some eagle corn in the 1980s in Colorado. But when I moved home in 97, 1997, that's, that's when, you know, we were just curious, you know, where's our corn? We're supposed to be people of the corn. We're supposed to be people of the buffalo. Um, and so that's kind of been the quest to get our seeds back. Um, so some families had seeds and tell you the truth, they, they weren't kept in very good conditions. Some were in tin cans and kept out in a hot shed and, and we, we couldn't get them to, to germinate, um, and we thought, well, we'll have to label that one extinct. Um, we we had help from scientists, Dr. Tom Hogemeyer. He was the chairman of the technical steering group of the U.S. Germplasm Enhancement of Maze. So he, he was world known for his work. And we, I was so thankful to get him to help help us with the project I thought for sure I'd have to write uh, like a million dollar grant and and uh, put him in as a, a great expert and uh, you know to get guidance on the genetics that we needed to know um, 
but as it turns out, we, we captured him over a cup of coffee. Um, so he, he helped us with some of the, the work that we needed um, and guided us to uh, write down all the characteristics of the corn. So he devised a chart that we started using and it's been about, I, I think this is our seventh year that we've been using his, his uh, information to collect data on our plant growth characteristics so that we can uh, document the uniqueness of our corn. Uh, he himself was or uh, yeah, was a, a uh, also a teacher at the University of Nebraska. And um, he had at one of one point in our seed collection, we had this stripy corn. And we called it the knife chief corn because it, it, it looked as if the corn itself had cross-pollinated. And we thought, well, okay, knife chief family. Uh, Dennis, way back when, turned into a mad scientist and, and came up with this stripy corn. But as it turns out, Tom Hogemeyer uh, informed me that they that one of his students had an unearthed a buffalo skull um, that was buried in the sandy hills of Nebraska. Um, and in it were hundreds of corn seeds inside. Um, and they were in good shape and uh, in such good shape that he was even able to study the DNA in there. Um, but what, what our chiefs were, were glad to see is that it was that same stripy corn that uh, we had labeled knife chief corn. And so they said, take that knife chief name out of there. We're going to go with this striped now. Uh, now we know it's just one of our varieties that we have. Um, so we've, we've had quite a undertaking uh, to take seeds that our ancestors had grown for hundreds of years and try to get them all back because we knew we had uh, a lot of varieties of our corn. And so around January, sometime in January, 2004, I uh, started communicating with uh, Ronnie O'Brien, and she's, uh, uh, as it turns out, a staunch Irish Catholic that lives in Nebraska. But she was working working at the Archway Museum in Nebraska, um, which is a museum that tells a great story about the, all the settlers that came through uh, along the trails and um, like the Oregon Trail and but the museum didn't tell any story about the original people that lived there and so she had um, wanted to as the education coordinator for the archway she 
wanted to still tell the story about the first people. And so she contacted me and for several years we, we were on the phone and, um, she wanted to grow some of our corn. And at the time she wrote an email and she said, I have been a gardener in central Nebraska all my life and am prepared to apply all my knowledge of our soil, weather, insects, and other intruders to help bring back the crops of the Pawnee through horticultural cycle. I am incredibly excited to be involved in with the project that could bring back the Nebraska crops that were here in the 1800s by the Pawnee. And so this was the promise that, you know, she wanted to do. And I took that to our culture committee and they debated, you know, well, why should we have a Chadi Saka grow our corn for us? Um, but my only argument was, well, the corn is from Nebraska and that's where it, it did really well for hundreds of years. And now we're in Oklahoma trying to grow it in this clay soil and there's, it's, it, it seems like it should be growing better. And so they did decide to trust this Ronnie O'Brien and I believe that they made the best decision because she's, it has proven herself to be trusted and and really has come you know confronted all the problems that we had um it seemed like we were weakening the uh seed and then when we sent the corn up to nebraska to grow in, in what we call our science gardens um they would get strong again and so it was like our seeds remembered they had like a soil memory where they just naturally thrived in, in that Nebraska sandy loam soil. Um, so it's been 18 years now since Ronnie and I started working together. Um, and at this time, you know, we have, um, 20 gardens that we grow in Nebraska. We're, we're taking our count right now. So, um, more than likely it'll be around 20. And then we've had about 19 in our, uh, Pawnee neighborhood, uh, here in Oklahoma. So, um, we at the present time are getting ready for our seed blessing and, um, most all of us have that dirt under our nails getting our soil ready and so what kind of agriculture do we do um i personally do what i call it the mound method uh it's the the way that our ancestors had uh planted and and that's to uh build up the soil um into a small mound that's probably about, um, I don't know, a foot and a half tall, and then spreads out about three feet across. And, um, and, and I really like doing that, especially down here in Oklahoma, because 
I could get that clay and build this this wall for the mound. And in the center of the mound, that's where I'll put other mulch uh, that I, you know, I always have a big mulch pile. And I'll, you know, put in maybe some uh, fish emulsion or... Uh, I used to tease that we would all, you know, instead of being the Indian that planted fish in every mound, um, like we're historically portrayed, um, that we would put a fish stick in each each mound. But, um, but yeah, in the center, I'll put nutritional soil in there um, and then plant right in the middle of each one. So it's as if I'm building uh, a pot out on the lawn and I'll probably have uh, around a hundred of those mounds and they're about a foot or so apart from each other Um, and in each mound I can plant about five um, seeds and each hill Um, we'll call them hills sometimes but other kinds of agriculture that we do um, in Nebraska, we we have our science gardens, and so we have botanists and master gardeners up there under um, my, uh, I call her my little corn sister, Ronnie O'Brien. Uh, so she manages all, everyone that's in Nebraska uh, with, their, with the science gardens, and so there might be really small plots. Well, that's fine, because we only had a few seeds to start out with. And some of those seeds we had to wait years to get. They were in some of our sacred bundles, and we would wait until they were opened, and then there would only be about 20 seeds in there. Um, So besides corn, we had different squashes and and beans as well. Um, So those science gardens are, are small. Uh, but recently, we've been able to have cover cropping at a an actual farm, and it's wonderful. Um, this this farm that's about thirty miles west of Lincoln, Nebraska. When his family first moved there, the Pawnees were still living there, and so that area where the Pawnees live. It was there was kind of a, a low land and there was like a creek that tributary that went through there and that's where the Pawnees lived. But because this family had like seven thousand acres, they never touched that land. They always left it alone because the Pawnees had at that time helped that family out for a couple winters and uh, got them through, and so out of respect, they they never touched that area. Um, but they did cultivate. They were they were even did the typical what you would imagine Nebraska farmers to do: plow, set up those giant irrigating things um, for depleting the aquifers. Um, to water but then this dell uh 
through the generations, Del Fike, who is part of that family, decided that, you know what, I'm not going to till anymore. I'm going to just do cover cropping and use the cattle that he had to be his equipment. And they can tromp the land, they can add the fertilizer. This cover cropping then became a method that practiced water conservation and actually produced a yield that outshone the, the gardeners that still plowed and and irrigated. Um, so we're real happy to be with with uh, Dell, and we're really happy that we're able to use the word acres now um, for growing out our seed. Um, another kind of agriculture that we do is is we we um, have um, some use of a, a greenhouse. We we do want to have um, more greenhouses built here in Oklahoma and, and also up in Nebraska. Um, and that's that's going to be great because with climate, um, the shift in our, our uh, climate, I mean, like last growing season, we had 17 days of 45 mile an hour winds and um, it, it really played havoc on our plants. Um, you know, we had to go in there and park all the vehicles next to the fields as a wind block and, and try to um, see what we could do to shore up the uh, corn so it wouldn't blow over. That was a lot of days, 17 days in a row, nonstop. Uh, so that's one of the hopes is if we could have you know, that might be a sign of the times that we have greenhouses, more greenhouses. Mm -hmm. And plus in September last year, uh, it, it got to be teetering at the freezing mark. And so, you know, the weather just seems to be a little bit unpredictable. Um, then our last sort of agriculture that we do is we're transplanting some of the we have some land that was donated back to us to the Pawnee up in Nebraska um, we have 550 acres in one location and and then a few others 120 acres and another probably about I want to guess maybe 30 acres um, and so what we would like to do are um, our ancestors had wild potatoes and different turnips, and we noticed that we don't see that on those properties. And so that's that's one of our projects is the trans transplanting of wild potatoes back near the creeks, uh, where they love to have it moist and by the tree line, e even up to the tree line where they they have partial shade. Um, so how does climate uh, change uh, seem to be affecting the way we, we do our gardening? Um, and I'm hoping, you know, that Pete will ask this question to everyone out in the audience too. 
but for us, we've we've kind of adapted um, because in Oklahoma we've had so much drought. Um, in the hills that I was describing um, that earlier, the the mound method, um, we also incorporate what is called the hogo culture technique, and that's. Um, a German word for a type of, of gardening. It's H-U-G-E-L-K-U-L-T-U-R. It's a great word to Google. Um, in the hogoculture technique, um, typically the Germans had uh, buried or uh, un- dug up um, and then laid down some rotten wood or uh, decomposing wood. And then this would act like a sponge for the soil that was topped over it. Um, And there would be a water release that could keep your plants going in without having to water it. Um, So I I like using the hogo culture. Um, Instead of using decomposing wood, I just simply put at the very bottom of the hill I'll put um, corn cobs in, and then fill it with the, the soil that I, I want. Um, and that absorbs the, the water and does a slow release. We also have um, an equip, some equipment to make mulch. And we have a lot of corn cobs, so uh, we mulch those and use those on on top that it helps deter the weeds and and also um, uh, makes it nice to keep the moisture in um, so another I don't know how to relate it with the cold climate change and the changes that we're making um, we are putting in more and more the pollinator gardens so that we can um, recruit all the, the help from our, our, our bees and butterflies and, and also hope to sustain that, uh, that they live on. Um, so another method that we would like to try uh, to address climate change is something that our ancestors did years ago when they had all these giant settlements and you know you everyone realizes that when you put corn hills close together or cornfields close together that there's that chance of cross-pollinating so what did the pawnees do when they had so many varieties of corn you know they would have had to travel miles and miles to get to their fields in order to assure that they wouldn't cross-pollinate. Well, our ancestors were real smart. They, they actually um, created these areas that had berm hills. So there was dirt that was mound up about four feet, and then there was about four feet across. And then on that four, four feet across, that's where they grew a thicket of sunflowers. 
And so when sunflowers grow to be 12 feet tall, there was inside that barrier of for the, the berm hills method, um, it had its own little climate in there. And so that, that's how we were able to have gardens next to each other. Um, so we want to try that out. We haven't done that yet. Um, but one of these days, we want to be as smart as our ancestors and uh, try to do that. So anyway, it's been quite an experience. We've, we've had every year we listen, observe, pray, um, really connect with our corn. And every year the corn teaches us more and more. Um, and one of the things I like to say when everybody says they have a three sisters garden, um, I want to say that, well, we have a four sisters garden because with the, we do grow our corn, surround it with, with sunflowers. They, you know, we don't have the berm hills, but when we have our little thicket of, of sunflowers growing around our gardens, um, that attracts pollinators. Plus, it does keep um, the deer and, um, you know, our, um, we don't even have rabbits go through there. I, don't, I think their soft, tender noses don't like maneuvering through the sunflowers. Um, but it seems to work. We have our, our, they act as fences, they act as wind blocks. Um, so we're happy to use that method. And I enjoy talking to our Nebraskans because we, um, you know, they're the corn huskers, they're sports. And so I always like the Razzam saying that the Pawnees were the original corn huskers, literally. Well, that's what I have for you, Pete, for now. Beautiful. Thank you, um, Deb, for sharing that knowledge. I'm going to open up the hand raising. Um, if someone wants to come up and and uh, up to the stage and ask Deb any questions or share some thoughts on especially climate change. Um, you mentioned a lot of different types of methods, um, the mound method. I've used that. I'm in Southern Arizona here in Tucson, and I've noticed the climate change here. It seems to be getting a lot hotter. Every summer, it gets super hot here in Tucson. Tomorrow, uh, it's going to be 90 degrees here tomorrow, and it's barely going to be, we're still in March. It's going to be 90, and where I'm at, it gets a little bit hotter. I can probably add on two more degrees, so about 92 so i've noticed it's getting really really hot every year it gets hotter and we plant our crops here a little bit earlier we start everything just because you know it's, it's just getting hotter i've noticed it the gardeners here the farmers my dad's been doing it all his life and he says no just start them early it's just getting way too hot and we do uh use the water saving methods 
um, the uh, we used a waffle garden. Have you tried that, Deb? Like a waffle garden? Um, I know you mentioned a lot of um, techniques, and uh, and I really like the sunflowers. The way you make those like a natural fence thicket. Have you tried the uh, waffle garden techniques? It sounds intriguing. No, you have to tell me about that. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of like well, it rains a lot here in the, in the during the monsoons around June or July, so we try to capture some of that some of the rain either in I have some rain barrels and some people have cisterns or a method to capture rain, but a waffle garden is, just looks like a waffle, but it's in um if you can picture a waffle but in the dirt. It, it's exactly what looks the same, but it's a little bit inside um inside the dirt, the little squares. So so when it rains, or we can channel water into the garden, so the water stays inside the little squares inside the little waffle garden. That's where we put our seeds and our plants, so it captures the rainfall, and uh, it stays there. So instead of running off, you know, off into the desert, uh, it actually captures the rain. So it helps a lot in saving that rainwater for the garden. So we do a little bit of that as well. But yeah, thank you very much. Uh, that's that's a wealth of knowledge. That's one of the reasons I, I really wanted you to come on here and um, share some of your knowledge, some of that indigenous knowledge. And I do have a question. You mentioned the seed blessings, and that's coming up. What is... What, when does that take place, and what is that, the seed blessings? Well, um, we, we believe that our, um, our, like our, our ancestral doctors, use plants to perform healing ceremonies. And in those contexts, the ceremonies were necessary to trigger the healing power of those plants. So our, our spiritual uh, seed blessers are designated by uh, the seed keepers in Sharo. And we conduct a ceremony in the springtime to bless the seeds as like how Nora Pratt did. Uh, they'll bless them, but of course the men are part of this ceremony and they do their thing at sunrise and and the, our lady seed blesser will meet the public and do the public blessing um part but the ceremony we believe will trigger the power of those plants as they grow and then of course we add our prayers and songs um as the, the plants grow and when we have our our harvest reveal in the fall, we celebrate by recognizing all the growers and pray that the crops offer us strength and good health. So I guess the blessings kind of the kickoff of all of the blessings that we do thereafter. Um, we just believe to, that the power of prayer is strong. Thank you, Deb, for sharing. Um, yeah, I was in another uh, room 
or a call about seed saving. And um, I know in our cultures, native indigenous cultures, it's so much more a seed carries like pretty much your whole culture and their the music, culture, songs, you know, your language, the seeds carry all of that. And um, it's just much more than just planting a, a seed in the ground. You know, it, it's a lot more meaning to to us, I'm sure for Deb and all of us here. And uh, I don't know if you want to add a little something, Waylon. And I did open the room. Let me make sure. Yeah, we got one. If you want to come on up, just please. Um, yeah. And um, just... Uh, it's open now. You can either ask Deb questions. I'm pretty sure she has a wealth of knowledge to um, share. And um, go ahead, Waylon. Yeah, Deb. Hey, I just had one quick question. I, well, actually, you know what? I am going to be, I'm going to try to be a good moderator. <laughs> Welcome, Isabel, to the stage. Uh, Isabel, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you, Waylon. Uh, Deb, unfortunately, I missed most of your, your presentation because I was training my team, but I'm coming to you from Algonquin uh, territory up in Canada. And I was excited when I heard that you were going to come speak because I'm just working on a project right now where we're going to be taking 129 acres in the farm. And we're going, we want, like the plan is to plant some of our indigenous, um, you know, traditional plants and, and have the community here work it so when i heard that you were coming i was so excited because i don't know anything about gardening i'm just helping organize stuff with the uh, the people that uh are, are uh, running the show but uh, i'm just wondering how can we get in touch with you i don't i don't know if um the the woman who uh i'm working with knows a lot about gardening either but like and i know it'll be different up here algonquins and uh you know it's the different territories and different plants but I'd love to know how to get in touch with you. The easiest way is, is to go to Facebook, my old friend Facebook, uh, <laughs> and, and then send a message there. Um, there, I'm on as an individual, but uh, we have over the years used a Pawnee Seed Preservation Project on Facebook, and it's like a diary. And so we posted, we have posted for, for years on that. Uh, but yes, you're welcome to message through the Pawnee Seed Preservation Project. And there's several of us that check those uh, messages. And I see Gina's out in the audience. She's one of the ones that, that checks the messages. So we'll get back to you. Um, and good luck with your project, Isabel. That's just wonderful that you're starting this endeavor. Miigwech, mm, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. We're going to have the gardens, and we're looking to get to get some of the Ojibwe spirit horses. And just we're trying to bring as much culture back as we can, and, and it's kind of in an urban setting, too. So, yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate any help and support that we can get from you guys because you, you've already started everything and you've been successful. So if we can learn. Uh, I know the climate's different, but um, I'm sure there's a lot of things that we can learn from you. So, miigwech, and uh, take, I'm wishing you success. You know, there is one thing. Um, 
we have had some of our gardeners um when they go to germinate the seeds they'll germinate them in paper towels and it's called the rag doll method and so what happens is when when it starts to germinate then this the you know start rooting and they have waited for that root to get even almost a foot long and then they have uh, Jack Reed uh, was one of our gardeners that oh he he also donated land from Nebraska to our tribe but he actually invented this tool that was made out of a tire pump uh, no tire pump that that would carefully plant those foot long uh, seedlings and um, and that that really helped you know to to get a, a start on that you know because I, I don't know if you would have greenhouses to, to start your plants inside or, or what but uh, but that's just another method that that's being used and I can have someone call you on that if you message your kind of a little story about watering because traditionally we've been told you know how we would plant our crops in Nebraska and then take off and go out on the buffalo hunts and then return to the gardens Um, so uh, watering then really wasn't done that much while everybody was gone and you know, if at all. And what we had found out is, uh, you know, at one of our science gardens in Nebraska, uh, Ronnie O'Brien was uh, uh, my little corn sister. She she was worried. You know, she she didn't want to water. Um, she kept, you know, praying. You know, she's that staunch Irish that prayed to all the saints and um anyway um so she got she woke up in the middle of the night you know had she had this dream about watering and basically the dream was go out to the garden so she went out in the middle of the night and walked through the corn patch and her legs got wet uh, walking along and and she can't see very good so she went back in and got uh, a better flashlight and magnifying glass and, and she went back out and she found water droplets all over the plants and then where she lives she has that GMO corn nearby uh, you know almost surrounding her and so she also walked out in that garden, uh, that field, and there was, she went down two giant rows and only found two droplets on the lower leaves, whereas our plants 
had uh, droplets everywhere and they were running down the plant um, as if it was watering itself. And there was real a low dew point that night too. So, um, you know, there is some plants, uh, especially in the uh, rainforest that are known to, to water themselves that way, take moisture out of the air and, and form droplets. So we were really happy to have the court show that to us. I, you know, I know, it, I know a little something about those older, you know, varieties just from my limited experience. Some of them are kind of purplish and they have, um, right near the base, they have like fingers with mucus. There's like a mucus that grows around that and sequesters nitrogen from the air. It makes its own nitrogen. So it does its own fertilization. And some of my buddies down south, they have those varieties. But the problem is, again, grow outs, you know, because whomever you're going to have a crop like that, you know, they're going to be responsible for actually um, taking care of it, growing it out, and then getting back seeds back to the uh, person that, that uh, lent it to them. So that's what they're doing in and around. And I've got some friends who's got all different kinds of varieties. You know, like a lot of these Andes, these, these varieties from the from uh, Peru, a lot of these um, corn varieties that went through extreme stress, you know, water stress and cold stress, etc. Some of those varieties are almost like grass, and they're different. They're not they're not like the corn that we were used to. Um, some of them are a little wedge shaped, etc. So, I'm interested in varieties like that because I believe firmly that the native varieties around the world. Um, in if we would have basically been allowed to do our trade routes, um, they were they were traded. You know, down down Central America, we have evidence of, of people coming up as far as uh, the Southwest area, and then the Southwest natives here they would take it to Salt Lake, and a lot of our relatives would come down towards Salt Lake because of the salt and the trade, right? So there was there was a, a pretty good route established over here. So different kinds of corn varieties end up in and around this this area here in the Navajo, around the Navajo Nation and, and some of the um, Pueblo tribes in and around, some more purebred varieties. And so, like I said, I, I really enjoy talking to you. You know, it sounds like we kind of, I have the same vibe as you in, in, in as far as really wanting to secure your corn and secure your um, land for your people and your self-sustaining, you know, and you're knowledgeable about the um, regenerative um, kinds of production and uh, taking care of things. So I really appreciate you and bless your people and, you know, let, let your relatives know that other people are praying for them and, and we're, you know, if we ever need to collaborate and support each other, I'm, I'm right there. I'm, I'd be an available person. So appreciate your depth and, and all of you to the room, Isabel and Waylon. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Aho, Montegret. Yes, thank you. Deb is a wealth of knowledge, a seed keeper. And uh, yeah, those are really good uh, words and uh, advice. We need to secure those seeds for our tribes. And um, I'm surprised also that uh, hasn't been done and it should be done. And um, I'm right there with you guys. I started um, uh, UOM at blue corn it actually sprouted and very very excited it's it's from our tribe it's a blue corn and I got the seeds from an organization here in Tucson 
it's called Native Seed Search, and they have a seed bank here in um, Tucson. Huge walk-in seed bank, and um, they they save a lot of native seeds. So um, if you're ever down in Tucson, Deb or Kevin, Isabel, um, they give you tours. We can just do a tour. Maybe they have some really a lot of the seeds they don't um, give them out, or they're not available because they're saving them. But it's really interesting. They have a lot of seeds, even the ancient Diocente. They have some of those uh, first seeds, the ancestor of corn, there as well. But I don't think those are definitely not available right now for anyone. But um, well, Deb, I'm going to. I guess we are finished. I want to thank you, Deb Echo Hawk, for um, coming on the uh, club gathering of nations. Um, and Waylon for moderating, Kevin, everyone that spoke today. And uh, this episode was recorded, so I will have it available uh, for anyone that wants to listen to it from the beginning. Uh, I know Isabel and somebody else might have came in later. Um, it will be available. I'm not sure when, but I'll let everyone know, probably on Instagram, if they want to listen to it. I think it's very, very valuable information to have uh, recorded a lot of this knowledge that Deb has and Kevin as well and Waylon all of us have a lot of knowledge to share but thank you Deb Echo Hawk thank you very much for coming on this room today into our club and sharing with us what you're doing with the Pawnee Seed Preservation thank you very much